Isn't that a nice song? It's a new one. It's very nice. At one point in Bob Dylan's uh, colorful and continuing musical career, he made a profession of Christian faith. And for a time at least, his music took a turn that seemed to have reflected that reality. Sadly, later on, he also seems to have recanted his profession, at least in the eyes of some, while others uh, stubbornly held on and still hold on to the hope that Dylan's profession of faith was not spurious but was, in fact, genuine. Percy, and having never met or talked to Mr. Dylan myself, I have no idea where he stands. I certainly hope something real is going on there. But whether genuine or not, uh, during the time when he is said to have converted to Christianity, one of the more powerful songs he wrote was called Gotta Serve Somebody. The words of which went something like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord but you're going to have to serve somebody. The song goes on like that for six or seven more verses, I think. And Dylan may have been speaking from conviction when he wrote that, or he may not have. He may have simply stumbled across some words that spoke more truly than he knew. But whatever the case, Dylan's song hits squarely on a reality that lies at the center of Romans 6, 15 to 23, which tells us, among other things, you really do have to serve somebody. There are no free agents in this world. And that truth is one that we will take a little bit of time to think about together this morning. But before we go any further into that, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we again approach you as the author of this text before us. This text that we're about to consider... Uh, for just a few minutes together. And the very fact that we would pause to talk to you on the front end before we even look at the passage is an acknowledgement of several things. It's an expression of our belief that the words we're about to read are your words. They're not merely inspiring. They are, in fact, inspired. They are breathed out by you. It's an expression of our confidence that these words, just as we have them, are the very ones you intended us to have, not some other words, these words. Thirdly, it is a plea for you to cause these words to land on our minds and hearts such that they leave an indelible impression upon us, like what happens when hands are pressed into wet cement. Fourthly, it's an expression of our hope that in this time, this 30 minutes of nothing really, you will nevertheless do what only you can do. That is, you will use this truth to carve away the parts of ourselves that are disfigurements of your image and sculpt us at least a little bit so that we better resemble your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, use these words to make you more visible in us. You more beautiful to us. You more desirable to us. And to cause us to then run after you harder and faster than ever before. And this we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Right before I read the passage, let me just quickly remind you that we are in what is the third, I believe, the third main section of Paul's letter. So far he's introduced his gospel. He then told us why everybody needs it, because everybody on the planet is condemned in universal unrighteousness. He's then told us that God's solution to this problem was it is to graciously bestow his righteousness upon his people through something that Jesus did not through anything that we do. And now, in this third section where we find ourselves, he's dealing with some objections that people are raising to his teaching on the grace of God in the gospel, which to the minds of some, what he's saying and the way he's emphasizing it was so radical, they feared that it would inevitably lead people to conclude that they no longer uh, needed to, to be concerned for their pursuit of holiness or godliness, and in fact, they really ought to actively pursue sin so that the grace of God would appear even more gracious than it already does. Now, that kind of thinking, if you could call it that, makes Paul a little crazy, and accordingly, he's already spent a bit of time showing the foolishness of it in the first half of Romans 6, where he, in the main, emphasizes the fact of the believer's union with Christ. That is, our real spiritual connection with Christ. Because of this union, Paul argues, Christ's death is our death. Because of this union, we were buried with Christ. Because of this union, His resurrection is our resurrection. We were raised with Him, and our futures now are all tied up with His future. Accordingly, Paul asks, how can we who have died to sin through our union with Christ... How can we who have died to sin continue in it? How can we who have been set free from sin return to it? How can we who were set free so that we might walk in newness of life even consider continuing in the sameness of our former sinful lives? And so Paul has argued thus far, and in so doing, he's leaned heavily on this truth of our union with Christ. Well, in verses 15 to 23, that's the first 14 verses. In the last part of the chapter, verses 15 to 23, where we are this morning, Paul's arguing the same point. He's presenting the same ultimate perspective with one main difference. As one writer puts it, Paul's rewinding the tape, and now he's going to play it again. However, this time, he's not going to emphasize our union with Christ, but instead our enslavement to God. Listen to how Paul begins in verses 15 to 16. What then are we? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? There are several things to take note of just there. For one thing, Paul's question, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? That question is essentially a repeat of the question asked in verse 1 of this chapter. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
And like that question, it's an example of Paul quoting his critics. This is an idea being suggested by his critics. And Paul's responding to that. So in verse 15, Paul's echoing his critics who are asking, essentially, because we're not under the law, that is, because we are not made right with God by means of law-keeping, but by means of grace, because that is the regime we're under, shouldn't we then continue in sin to further highlight the grace and kindness of God? Not surprisingly, Paul's response to this idiotic question in verse 15 is the same as the response in verse 2. By no means. Which, as we saw, is the Pauline equivalent of saying, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Paul simply cannot imagine Christians seriously coming to this sort of conclusion. He cannot imagine it, as we've already seen, because of the truth of our union with Christ. And even further, he cannot imagine it because of his understanding of the dynamics of our enslavement to God. Now, the sort of enslavement that Paul had in mind is not likely the one that is running through your mind right now, as I say that word. That is, the involuntary subjugation of unfortunate people in the harsh servitude of others. Rather, what he almost certainly had in mind was something slightly different. Uh, One writer explains it like this. The concept in this verse may surprise us because we tend to think of Roman slaves as having either been captured in war or bought in the marketplace. Not as having offered themselves in slavery. But there was such a thing as voluntary slavery. People in dire poverty back then could and did offer themselves as slaves to someone simply in order to be fed and to be housed. Paul's point is that those who thus offer themselves in that way invariably had their offer accepted. They could not expect to give themselves to a slave master and simultaneously retain their freedom. It's the same with spiritual slavery. Self-surrender leads inevitably to slavery whether we thus become slaves to sin which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. This seems obvious to us when we see it played out in the lives of other people. It seems far less obvious to us or true when we take a long, hard look at ourselves, such as the nature of our sin. But Paul is saying, if you keep submitting yourself to sin, if you keep giving into it as a rule, not as an exception, If you make your peace with it, if you cease to struggle with it, if you get to the place where your conscience no longer troubles you about it, if you continue to respond to the call of sin with little or no resistance, then you show yourself to be the slave to it that you are, and you show it to be the master over you that it is. And in Paul's words of warning, then, we hear the strong echo of Jesus' own teaching in Luke 16, 13, don't we? He writes there, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now surely Jesus' comment there in Luke's gospel is talking about money in particular as one kind of master, but the principle there in Luke is the same one found here in Romans 6. A person might claim and profess allegiance to God, might describe himself or herself as a servant or a slave of God. But if the pattern of their life reveals continual, predictable, usual obedience to sin, then that person is showing by those realities where his or her loyalties truly lie. 
where his submission can be found, the one before whose knee he or she truly bows. And this principle of enslavement, that the pattern of your surrender reveals the identity of your master. Let me say it again. The pattern of your surrender reveals the identity of your master. But that principle of enslavement, like the fact of our union with Christ, is a further reason why the charge that Paul's teaching on grace encourages people to sin is so ludicrous. Because that pattern of submission to sin would be proof that a person had never recognized or embraced or come under the lordship of Christ. Because if they had, then the pattern would be changing. The pattern would be very different. And this then leads Paul in verses 17 to 19 to take advantage of the moment to remind his readers of just what happened to them when they first responded to the gospel. But thanks be to God, he says, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now there are several things I don't want you to miss in those verses either. Firstly, one of the things that Paul is emphasizing here is the simple fact that believing the gospel, embracing the Lord Jesus, means essentially not that you have ceased to be slaves, You're still slaves, and you will be for the rest of your life. It simply means that you've undergone a change of masters. Now, this fact of the inescapability of slavery, that everyone is always serving somebody, as Dylan sang, that fact is one that's often lost on unbelievers. It's not uncommon for non-Christians to think of submitting to God as a choice between holding on to their freedom and giving it up. Often Christians will be looked upon by their non-Christian family and friends with a pitiable condescension as poor, misguided creatures who've given up their autonomy and freedom and have, as a result, become something less than fully human because they've allowed themselves to be ruled over by some sort of God. But the choice before people, as Moo puts it, is not a choice between liberty and bondage. The choice is not, should I retain my freedom or give it up and submit to God? That's not the choice. The choice is simply, which master will I serve? Specifically, the choice is, should I serve sin or should I serve God? Again, as Dylan sings, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve Somebody. Non-Christians who imagine themselves to be autonomous and free are actually in the midst of the worst form of bondage. The kind that's neither seen nor recognized for what it truly is. They think they're just doing what they want. They think they're just following their dreams and pursuing their desires. They would never think of describing what they're doing as slavery. And yet, it is. In preparing this message, something I read reminded me of Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. 
If you haven't read it, you should. It's one of the best books I've ever read, hands down, and one of the best analyses that there is on the influence of technology and pop culture on the heart and mind. The foreword of this book, just the foreword, one page, all by itself is worth the price of the book. Here's what he says. We were keeping an eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another slightly older, slightly less well-known, but equally chilling vision, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even amongst the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy or write about the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the very technologies that undo their capacities to think. Sound familiar? What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. As Huxley remarked, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And this book is about the possibility that Huxley, and not Orwell, was right. One of the things that Postman's book reveals is the very real manner in which people can be enslaved to things and held captive by chains they don't even recognize as chains. So it is at the end of the day, there are no free people. There's only people who see and understand their slavery and people who do not. That's what Paul's saying. That's one thing that Paul is saying. A second thing that's worth noting in verses 17 to 19 is the way that Paul talks about the Romans' conversion, that is, their response to the gospel. He talks about them being obedient from the heart. And he talks about their being obedient to a standard of teaching to which they were committed. And these two things in there are worth mentioning. The first one is the phrase, become obedient from the heart. What I think is striking about that is that it describes the Romans as being obedient from the inside out. As a result of a heart change, not as the result of something that took place um, on the outside of them. 
on the outside in. In other words, the transformation that was going on within them was not because of something applied to them from the outside like some sort of legalistic pursuit or application of the law. It was coming from somewhere else. And the language used here, it seems to me, has in view the internal work of the Spirit of God as he does that which only he can do, causing otherwise spiritually dead people to become alive and awake to God. And what lends support to this understanding is the fact that the grammar of the verb here suggests that it's not an ongoing thing, but a particular event, an occasion when something took place in the past in the hearts of the Romans that had and has ongoing ramifications. Titus 3 talks about this same kind of thing. Maybe you're familiar with this. Titus 3, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The thing described there in Titus the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit seems to me to be a likely candidate for understanding what Paul is getting at here in Romans when he talks about this event, this occasion when the Roman believers began to be obedient from the heart. And so has in view the work of God, the gracious, merciful, sovereign work of God that makes all the difference, which takes away any ground that we might have for boasting. The other thing to notice here is how Paul talks about them being obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching to which they're committed. And this too is interesting language when you look at the Greek. One commentator has this to say about it. Only here does Paul speak of believers as those whose allegiance has been claimed by a pattern of teaching. That is the gospel. Literally rendered, this expression says that the Romans were obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which they were handed over. We would expect him to say that the teaching had been handed over to them, had been delivered to the Romans, but instead he says that they had been delivered to the teaching. The rabbis might view themselves as the masters of their tradition, but the Christians are in subjection to the teaching that God has given them. Paul sees the gospel as having a certain content, and he sees that truth, the gospel truth, as something that stands over those that believe it. It's a truth that they're in subjection to, that calls for obedience and submission. In other words, there's something inherently humbling about the truth of the gospel, something that requires you on the front end to fall on your knees, to bow your head, to feel almost as if you have to look away. A further thing to note in this section is the statement in verse 19 that sounds almost like Paul is apologizing for the language that he's using. Listen again. Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When Paul says he's speaking in human terms, it seems that most likely he's referring to his use of slavery as an analogy for explaining the Christian situation with respect to sin, formally and with respect to God now. One reason Paul draws attention to that and his use of that and acknowledges the humanness or perhaps earthiness of that analogy is because Paul knows that the analogy of slavery does not completely 
or accurately describe every aspect of the Christian's situation. For example, we're slaves to Christ, absolutely, but Christ himself tells his disciples that his yoke is easy. That his burden is light. Easiness and lightness are not typically associated with the idea of slavery. In other words, Paul is saying that there is something that is liberating and freeing about belonging to Christ even though we are slaves to Christ. Having Christ as your master is something that does add a lightness to your step, a light to your path, hopefulness to your heart. And that reality is not fully conveyed by the analogy of slavery. So why does Paul use it? He says because of their human limitations. He says... Uh, which at the end of the day is likely a reference to the fact of their sinfulness, their weakness, and perhaps their dullness, their slowness to comprehend spiritual things. So because of those limitations, Paul uses admittedly limited analogy, but he uses it precisely because it makes his case very clear. There's a simplicity to it that gets the point across very well. Just as the Romans were once enslaved to sin, and that only led them further and further into sin and lawlessness, now they're to remember and act and live according to their new reality, that sin is no longer their master. Christ is. They're now slaves not to sin, but to righteousness. And the consequence of their regular remembering of that and their pursuit of that will be increased holiness and sanctification. That's the logical and necessary end to the new path that they're on. That's where their new master is taking them. The third and last set of verses I want to draw your attention to are verses 20 to 23 where Paul emphasizes, as one writer puts it, that life under grace, even though it is grace and it's not law, is still very much a life of obedience. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So after working really hard to make it clear that the choice before people at the end of the day is not a choice between slavery and freedom, but a choice between this master and that one. After making that clear, Paul comes back to concede in a way that there was an aspect of freedom in their former life. They were free from living righteously. They had that kind of freedom, if you can call it that. But where did it lead them, he asks. What did it get them? What was the fruit of it? The fruit of their former situation of that freedom was things that when they look back on them now are a thing of shame. And the greater fruit beyond that was death, referring ultimately not just to physical death, but in context, must be referring to spiritual death, the separation from God forever. And likewise, just as there was an aspect of freedom in their former life, so is there an aspect of freedom in their new life. What sort of freedom do they have now? Well, they were free from righteousness. Now, he says, they're free from sin, meaning they're no longer under its dominion. They're no longer under its lordship. In its realm, they're not held captive by its power. And one day, they'll not even be in its presence. And the thing that awaits them now at the end of this new road is not shame, but glory. 
Not death, but eternal life. Not moral deterioration, but moral transformation. Not separation from God, but dedication to God. And life with God as His fully restored images, perfectly reflecting His glory. And please note the very precise language that's used here, especially in verse 23. That's the one that gets memorized, where Paul is extremely careful to distinguish between the two outcomes of the two paths that result from following two very different masters. To be enslaved to sin results in a wage. It results in a person getting what he or she deserves. And what is deserved, the outcome, the payment, the wage, is death. And so contrary to what his critics might be thinking, indulging in sin will not cause the grace of God to abound. It will not merely uh, more clearly highlight the grace of God. Instead, it will increase your enslavement to sin. It will move you further and further into lawlessness. It will earn you a wage that you don't want to earn. And cause you to receive exactly what you deserve, which is the last thing you really want. And that's what you deserve. Death, separation from God, misery, shame. But the outcome for belonging to the other master, Christ, is quite different. The consequence of being a slave to righteousness is another matter altogether. And please notice, Paul does not use the language of wage anymore. And he doesn't use it because it isn't about getting something you earn or deserve. In fact, it's about getting something you most certainly do not deserve. Pursuing holiness, living a life of obedience, does not earn you a wage. That's not the language that Paul uses. He uses the language of gift. He makes it clear that what is received, eternal life with Christ, is not a reward for a person's per personal obedience. It's not a person getting something that they've earned or merited. It's a gift. So why does obedience matter? It matters. It's important, not because it earns something, but because it demonstrates something. It proves something. It reveals something that is true about us, namely this. That we've been removed from the kingdom of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light. That we've been delivered from the lordship of one master, sin, and are now under the mastery of a new lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you observe a person who is pursuing God, pursuing godliness, is concerned for holiness, when you see that, you are not watching a person who is earning their salvation. You are watching a person who is demonstrating their salvation. A person who is showing that he or she has been saved. That something has happened in their hearts. And they have come alive to God because of what God has done for them and within them. Does Paul's gospel of grace encourage people to sin? Absolutely not. Because those who embrace the gospel are in union with Christ. And their being in Christ means they'll become more and more like Christ. And further, those who embrace the gospel show that they've undergone a change of masters. And the reality of that change will evidence itself in a life not of self-indulgence in sin, but of self-denial in the pursuit of holiness. Not because you must, but because you will. Not because of what you will obtain, but because of who you are.
Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you do not love us because we're good. Then you'd never have a reason. You do not love us because we're good. You love us because we're yours. And because we're yours, we want to be like you. We thank you, Father, for not only that you saved us, but that you saved us that way in a way that doesn't feed our pride and our ever-present arrogance and desire to take your place, to be in charge, to claim some credit for our standing with you. Thank you for saving us in a way that requires us to empty ourselves of ourselves, to be completely humbled for you, to be completely at the mercy of your mercy. And Father, the more we understand that and are overtaken by that, would you cause that to move us so that it is reflected in a life that shows the gratitude for that, that shows a desire to be like the one who has loved us that way, that shows a recognition that this is the central need of all humanity, which includes everyone we know. And move us, Father, as we grow in our embrace and understanding of this with a real compassion for those that do not know you. And even as I say those words, names and faces are popping into the heads and minds of everybody in this room. Father, move us with compassion to those people to speak the gospel, to show the gospel, to love them enough to lovingly, winsomely, and wisely tell them about the mercy that is there and available in the Lord Jesus and their great need of it. Father, make that one of the ends of our embracing of this teaching and our growth in this way. And then would you be glorified and honored by that and the fruit that comes through that. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We'll take up an offering now for those who want to support the work of this church and the various ministries that we support as a congregation through this church.